Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Welcome to the Rap Report with your host, Andrew Rappaport, where we provide biblical interpretation and application. This is a ministry of striving for eternity and the Christian podcast community. For more content or to request a speaker for your church, go to strivingforeternity.org. Well, welcome to the Rap Report. I'm your host, Andrew Rappaport. And this week, we are not joined by my co-host, Bud. He's not here, but we have someone else that will be very informative uh, a friend of mine, Jim Wallace, and also known as Jay Warner Wallace. Why, I always like to ask you this. Why don't you go by Jim Wallace? That's that's your name. <laughs> well, because there's a Jim Wallace at Sojourners. Um, so whenever I do radio, people would think uh, he's very different than me. He's a very, very different uh, perspective. And some of the shows I would be on, they would say, uh, well, you know, people think that you're him. And when we uh, introduce or say next week we're going to have or next hour we're going to have, we get all these angry emails like, why would you have this guy on your show? So they said, you need to change your name. Well, I was always using Jay Warner Wallace on uh, search warrants anyway, because I used to want a hat tip my grandfather, whose name was Warner. And so I would always put that on my professional stuff anyway. So I just said, okay, I'll, I'll just start using that name publicly, <laughs> which I really didn't want to have to change. I was Jim Wallace, believe it or not, until somebody told me I could not be, I was actually Greg Kokel, because yes. you cannot be Jim Wallace anymore. So <laughs> that's what changed it. <laughs> and and so for folks who may not know you, you just, you just gave a hat tip there of your background uh you mentioned doing warrants signing warrants yeah you 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 have uh i think 20 plus years uh doing some some work outside of christianity you've been on shows like dateline and others uh for folks who may not be familiar with you what what did you what do you spend most of your career doing well, I spent about 26 years doing cold, well, not all those cold cases. A lot of it was toward the end, probably the last 12, 13 years or so. And we had collateral duties before that when I was working homicides. And these are just unsolved murders. And our team would uh, originally started picking up the unsolved just to see if we could, you know, push it across the finish line a little bit. And then, you know, at some point we got successful. So they just formed a permanent <laughs> team. And that's where I sat for a, quite a bit of time working these old cases. And some of these ended up in books, which is, you know, kind of the approach that I took when I first I was about 35 when I first examined Christianity. I didn't know any other way to get in. I mean, I didn't know this wasn't something I thought, well, I'm going to take this particular approach. No, I just 
that's like, you know, if you, if you were, I don't know, if you were an English teacher, maybe you'd be focused on the way the gospels are written grammatically. I don't know. But from an investigator's perspective, that's, that's all the thing I knew was, well, these are making claims about the past that seem to be sequential, like they're in chronology, you know, as if these things actually happened. And then you get at the end of John's gospel, he's making it sound like he actually saw this stuff. So in the end, I thought, well, let's just test these as eyewitness accounts. That's how I actually got into the whole I became interested. Well, also a pastor was clever and, and <laughs> originally, you know, pitched Jesus in a way that I could catch him. He said that Jesus was super smart, like the smartest man who had ever lived. And I just thought that was provocative. I just, you know, I wasn't sure what to make of that. Uh, lots of people are smart, uh, but I wanted to see what was so smart about him. So I bought a Bible just sitting on my shelf back here that was the, the a pew bible that really was the the gateway in to studying jesus and that's really what developed over those years that's why i'm writing about it still today yeah i mean for folks that don't know you you were pretty much against christianity for years you were a police officer which mm-hmm. I, I do i always find this interesting that if anyone called uh the the los angeles police department they always found a, a jim wallace there for for several decades <laughs> well, yeah so we were in a subs i never tell people exactly what agency i used to never tell people because my chief would say don't tell anybody where you're from you say you're a los angeles county i don't think that and that chief was just not a not a believer and and really did not want a believer out there as the face of the agency isn't that interesting <laughs> you would think it would be just the opposite right now I, I bet you there's places in the world though where where um, if you were to survey the department, that most would be Christians. Um, But here in Los Angeles County, that was never the case. It was never, I didn't know a lot of, I knew a couple. Um, They were older guys, older than me, maybe about 10 to 15 years, um, more time on the the agency. They were very much, uh, not all of them came to faith early, but they could not tell you why it was true. So they came to faith by way of, of an experience, which was you know, a valid way to come to faith. I'm not, I'm not against that idea. But when I asked questions, it just seemed so unreasonable that, it, that I just was not interested. And the few people that would say they were publicly Christians you come in contact with were usually people who were taken to jail. And then you thought, mm, yeah, this whole system seems like it's not very powerful and doesn't seem like it's um, reasonable. And so I just stayed away from it. I only went to church because my wife was interested in going to church. And I think I would have gone like my dad where, you know, he, he, he still would go to church, even though he doesn't think it's true, but he thinks it's helpful. He would much rather live in a Christian nation than in some other nation. And that's that, that, I think that's interesting. Yeah, that's um, very interesting. So he sees the power in it. And this is why this book I'm, I just wrote called, you know, Person of Interest really kind of tries to leverage that a little bit. And I gave him a copy about two weeks ago. I don't know if he'll read it, but I mean, it's not as though he hasn't heard everything I could say <laughs> for the last 20 years. Um, it just doesn't seem to move him. But um and that's just the, the nature of it. I always tell people, if you think that somehow this evidential approach that I take has some power beyond God's power, you're crazy. Yeah. It's, it's all God top down. It's just a matter of what is it you are communicating about the gospel that God is then going to use to do what God's going to do. And so for me, because he knew who I was, I think he, he knew that this is the gospel had to be kind of cloaked in this kind of an approach, yeah. right, where I could come in this way. And I thought that the same was be true for my dad, but a lot of people are resistant to the truth claims for reasons entirely different than evidential reasons. You know, they've got volitional issues. They don't want it to be true. And, uh, and God hasn't yet moved to, to soften their hearts on this issue. And that's why I always say that people don't have an evidence problem. They have a spiritual problem. That's right. And, and so we can give them all the evidence in the world, 
Yep. And it doesn't matter. Now, your background as, as a police officer being, uh, you know, really being against, not, not so much maybe against the gospel, but you weren't really a believer. Mm-hmm. You, you approached it from your background as a cold case detective. And, and for folks that don't know your first book, really, that kind of was your approach, right? To apply your background as a cold case detective doing cold cases and looking at the gospels and saying, okay, is this really, is this a legitimate source? I mean, your your expertise is mm-hmm. knowing eyewitness testimony years after the fact. That's exactly what the gospel accounts are, and you applied that mm-hmm. to that. Yeah. And, you know, Andrew, part of it was because my family was just divided between, like, you know, almost everyone was not a believer, or if they were a believer, they certainly never talked about it. Uh, it never was part of their, their faith, uh, never part of their life, rather. I, th- I suspect that my grandmother on my mom's side, that entire part of her family was, was raised Catholic, but never, never, ever was part of anything growing up, really. Uh, my mom was kind of a cultural Catholic by the time she had me. And so it was the kind of thing you might do on a, on, a, on Christmas or well, just probably just Christmas. I mean, Easter was not, like, so it wasn't even on Easter, but you would go. I probably went a half a dozen times as a kid. And it just seemed like, something that was very insincere because, because it didn't feel like um, that my, my mom was living it. She didn't own a Bible. Um, It wasn't a part of our conversations, not a part of our life. Um, So I just thought it was this fantasy that, that some people uh, probably think of it more deeply than others. I I was not interested in it at all. Um, But in the end, you know, a lot of it for me was, I had this division between people who weren't believers. And then I had a small pocket. My dad's second wife is, uh, was Mormon is Mormon. And so she raised my half brothers and sisters LDS. So when I started to look at scripture for the first time, seriously, they right away presented me with uh, the scripture for Mormonism. Yeah. And they took a, a view that was, Hey, this is, we, we believe these documents are foundationally true. Um, and that, and so they, to be honest, in some ways, it was a very much a presuppositional view. Um, and I just thought, okay, I didn't know one from the other. So I got the book of Mormon. My sister gave it to me and I read through the book of Mormon. And I remember that but the, the quad in Mormonism is, is that old and new Testament in the King James, the book of Mormon, the doctrines and covenants and pearl of great price. Well, I got a hold of a quad pretty quickly. And I just, before I even finished the old Testament, I had read the book of Mormon and halfway through the doctrines and covenants. And as I worked through it, I realized that, you know, we, I just needed to know which of these two systems yeah, because you know if, you, if you've never read scripture and you've got a King James Bible, it's going to sound a lot like the Book of Mormon. As a matter of fact, doctrinally, at the time that Joseph wrote the Book of Mormon, mm-hmm. it, some of his uh, theological principles were pretty, you know, kind of like a denomination rather than as crazy as they got by the time he's in the stuff that's in the Pearl of Great Price. So if if you know he changed his doctrines changed over time. So people don't know that. Really... I mean, that's an important thing. People don't know that. That and uh, I think Sandra Tanner uh, worked on something where she said that basically the the Book of Mormon is closer to Christianity than it is Mormonism. It absolutely is. And so if you don't know the difference, I mean, it even sounds, and of course, you know, he takes a bunch of Isaiah and he puts it just word for word in Book of Mormon. So there's a lot of stuff that if you're just a first-in-time investigator, like, I'm not even sure I had read Isaiah before I read Isaiah in the Book of Mormon, <laughs> right? Because I'm just like looking at it from the first first time. So so I didn't know which was true. So what, how do you distinguish them between 
So it's not just that the evidential approach led me to something true. It also can kind of prevent you from falling into the lie because the first thing you're going to want to know is, well, how do I, what's the system by which we determine a witness is reliable. And if we apply it to the book of Mormon really quick, it starts to deteriorate. I mean, really fast. So it's not uh, to me, I just knew, okay, I don't, I know, I don't, I wasn't quite sure yet about Christianity, but I knew the book of Mormon was not true because it it can't uphold the test. So I just knew to walk away from that. So in some ways it was, it kind of, inoculated me from from doing too much more time yeah uh, on that side yeah i mean you know know, it's funny how we use our background you use your background as an investigator you know with with eyewitness testimony to examine you know book of mormon the the gospels it was funny when i studied mormonism when I, i was working with a co-worker who was mormon trying to explain to me like try to convince me I'm a, by background, I'm a software engineer, so I, I write programs. Well, I, I actually wrote a program to calculate the birth rate and death rate and to, to really see whether the Book of Mormon, because the, the thing is, if the Book of Mormon's right, right, it should be able to, to have a, a normal birth rate that's necessary for all the people that die in the wars that are in the Book of Mormon. Right. Now, in the 1800s, to have those many people die is not unusual, but it is unusual you know, if you're saying in the first century. And so I had calculated that the birth rate required for the death rate in the Book of Mormon was like 12 to 15 times the normal percentage. Right. <laughs> it was like, right. this just isn't normal. <laughs> I know. So it was well, like, that's okay. actually, so this is part of the stuff that makes a difference when you're start, starting to, I mean, even just archaeologically, right? It's a thousand year period of time chronicled in the Book of Mormon from about 600 BC to about 400 AD. And well, you would think there'd be some evidence that any of that, any of it, uh, a single Mormon name on some description <laughs> somewhere. So you, so, I mean, it's so when you see, then also as, as you start to listen to how people would justify, this is why I'm very careful about how I will defend my Christian beliefs. Cause you start to see certain patterns in defense attorneys and what they say that I often will see in people who are religious on one to not one, one um, religion or another who will try to justify uh, claims as well. And I just don't want to, I want to make sure that number we're not, we're not doing that. I mean, cause if that's the case, I'm not interested, but as I got more and more, and also just the, I think that part of it, and I, and when I wrote cold case Christianity, I just stayed inside the gospels and I, I wrote a longer version originally and my <laughs> wife read it and she said, this is really boring. <laughs> so, so when I wrote it finally for David C. Cook, the publisher, I tried to streamline it a little bit to make it, to move, to make it read faster. Um, and so we ended up leaving a lot of stuff out and, and this has been hanging around. And when Zonerman came to me and said, Hey, would you, they wanted something similar because uh, I had not been with Zonderman yet. And I said, well, I've already written that book, but I do have uh, a different approach. So whereas the book, whereas a cold case kind of looks at everything inside the Gospels, I never really got a chance to explore what I wanted to explore, which is outside the Gospels. In other words, if Jesus is who he said he was, wouldn't you expect there to be more than just this little tablet of information, the four Gospels? Well, of course, there's a ton. There's a ton of impact that Jesus had. So what we did with this book is we said, okay, look, like you're working on no body murder. You don't even have a crime scene. You don't even have a body. He got rid of the body and he buried <laughs> someplace and they never found it so so you know there's not even a crime scene no, no one even took a report this is sad but you know he reports that she they had a fight last night and everyone believes it and then probably everyone who works a missing person case like that should come in and photograph the house but you know you, you, you take them sometimes the guy will this in one case the guy came to the uh to the department uh, like two days later so now he's at the front desk 
giving a report about his missing wife who we thought would come back a couple days ago. She hasn't come back. Huh. Well, that first person who takes a report is a service officer. It's not even a detective. That's just the guy working at the front desk. Oh. He takes the report, puts it in the computer or puts it on paper in those days. And then he ships it back to records. Now, two days later, it's assigned to a detective. We're now four days behind the murder. So by the time he gets it, he calls. Well, did she come back? Because a lot of times they just come back. And no, they didn't come back. Well, can you talk about this? Well, I'm at work today. Can you come over tomorrow? Sure. Now we're five days behind <laughs> it. Okay. So there's just no, I mean, you got no crime scene. You got no um, um, uh, body. Uh, so how do you make this case, especially if it goes cold for 30 more and which I've got a couple of those that went cold for 20 to 30 more years. Well, wow. you have to kind of demonstrate that on the day of the, the disappearance, if she was murdered, it's like a bomb went off. Every bomb has got a fuse. And then afterwards there's debris everywhere. There's fallout. You can tell people, you can demonstrate what kind of bomb you have just from the fuse mm. and the fallout. And that's what we do in these nobody murder cases. And I've done a, a couple of them. Um, I think at least one's been on, yeah, one's been on Dateline. So so these are cases that I'm you know I'm pretty familiar with. And nobody wants to file these cases. No DA wants to file them because they're terrible cases. You gotta prove number one that she's dead, then you gotta prove that he did it. So so it's a twofold problem because you have no body. Yeah. So 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 I thought, well, could the same I took the same approach with Jesus. If you said, Okay, I'm not going to acknowledge anything in the New Testament, I'm just gonna stop. I'm gonna imagine a scenario in which every New Testament had been destroyed. If it seemed to me that if Jesus was who he said he was, that God would have there'd be more than just a New Testament tidal wave of information. Now granted Everything about Jesus that can be known is New Testament dependent. That's not the issue. Because in the end, all we're going to do is find evidence of other people who have already read the New Testament who are going to be talking about it. Okay. But that's the kind of thing you would expect, right? Like like when Elvis died, people talked about Elvis. They still write a book a year. It's been 40 years. There's more books written about Elvis. You'd be amazed at how many there are. So I looked at the entire catalog of Elvis books, and I watched how the story morphs over time. Well, that's what you would expect from the guy who was like the biggest recording artist of his day. You know, until Michael Jackson came along, nobody sold more albums. I think he's like the second richest dead celebrity in terms of album sales, okay? Wow. I mean, this guy has had a huge impact on the industry. Well, wouldn't you expect that people would take the core story of Elvis and extrapolate from that all kinds of legends that will sell books? Of course, they did, but they, they can reconstruct the core story of Elvis from what everyone has in common on all these salacious books. Well, something similar happens with Jesus, which you would expect. I mean, you would expect if Jesus is who he said he was, he'd at least have the impact that Elvis had in history. And that's what we're trying to do with the person of interest to show that, yeah, you could reconstruct the story of Jesus from the amazing, oversized, un, un, really unparalleled impact that one person had on human history in lots of places that you might not expect it. And that's what we're trying to do with the book is to show the kind of unexpected nooks and crannies. There's a lot of books out there. I've got them sitting back here because I read them and, and cited them in the book that talk about the impact of Jesus. But none that I found uh, would actually go back and look for the fingerprints. So if you said, for example, he's had a huge impact on science, which he has. And but no one I could find had given me a list of all of the fathers of scientific disciplines that were devout Jesus followers. And that list is tremendous. I mean, there's, there's no corner of science that hasn't had a discipline founded by a Christian, either in antiquity, all the way to quantum mechanics and computer sciences, computer languages. These are things that, that Christians have been involved in. And here's what's cool about it is those Christians also write about Jesus. Mm-hmm. So if you just had the writings of the science fathers, you could learn more about Jesus than you can from the writings of the church fathers. 
Interesting. Now that's very, very interesting, right? Because that means you'd have to destroy not only the New Testament, but the entire history of the Antonicene Fathers and beyond, yeah. and the entire history of scientific thinkers, because the biggest and best ones historically wrote about Jesus too. You have yeah. to destroy all that work. So this that's the footprint that is so huge about Jesus. And I wanted to kind of show it, especially for young people who I, I didn't learn this in Los Angeles County. Maybe others are, but uh, I think everything, I don't think I learned a single thing about Jesus of Nazareth in my entire education through, you know, through a master's degree. Uh, not a single thing. So, so it's important for us. And by the way, if you were to search and we tried this in terms, I had two research assistants and we looked at books and online resources. There's a lot of universities that will make their online libraries available. So you can actually just kind of search or sign in and you can search, but um, it's hard to find people who are writing about the Christian identity Mm. of major scientists in history. As a matter of fact, most they will. So I know I'm grossly underestimating the impact of Jesus, because a lot of these profiles about important scientists have had their religious identity scrubbed. Mm. So I don't even know, you know, you have a sense where I know where he was born and what time he was born. There's a good chance this dude is a Christian, but unless I can find explicitly someone writing about him being a Christian, I'm not going to include him. So, so I know we've underestimated the number of of scientists that are Christians in the book. Yeah. And so the book you're referring to is your latest book, person of interest, which any book that's all about Jesus, I love just, off the bat. <laughs> but for you know, for folks who don't know the book, before we get into the content, you you have a different background as well that I think I've seen more evidence in this book than any of your other books as an illustrator. Um, yeah, well, I asked, I, you know, I, my background was in design and in uh, architecture, and then I became a detective or police officer, and for, for years, while I was working patrol, they would just have me come out and draw the the uh, murder scenes. So I was at a lot of murders when I was just a patrol officer, and I was working gangs for a couple of years. I can remember I did a couple of murders while I was working gangs, not investigating, just drawing them or building the model afterwards for court. So by the time I got assigned there, I think it was kind of a natural transition to, to start investigating them because I was already been at the crime scenes of so many of them people knew me so that's that's kind of how that worked and I didn't really use the art side of it aside from drawing crime scenes until I started doing jury trials and then we knew that we could make these visual and the first time we really robustly did that with media was probably around 98 mm-hmm. and so we we started um so it's been what 24 23 years ago and we just started um doing visual presentations so I asked and I always knew that if you could do a hundred closing arguments before you do the closing argument, um, you'll get to a very good closing argument because you've worked out all the bugs. And, and so I asked Zonervan, because I knew that I had, I had been speaking about cold case for probably five or six years before I wrote the book. And so I knew that uh, all the visual material was already ready. Um, but for this book, I knew that I needed a couple of years to build this visually. Um, and so they gave me two years to build the stage presentations uh, and, and to give a few so I could see. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of what I built, which I thought was going to be so powerful visually, I just don't use because it's, I, I did it once and I, now it's, it drags. It's too slow. It's, it's not compelling. It's true. It's all good. It's all informative, but it wasn't compelling in a stage presentation. Mm-hmm. I wanted a book that would be uh, compelling and a quick read. So that's why there's over 400 illustrations in the book. Those are really just kind of the stage presentation uh, illustrations that I've turned in the line. So you can, you can print them in a book, right? Because otherwise they're full color and they don't, 
no one can afford to print. Yeah. <laughs> also, I like the idea that you, if you're on a, a, a blank white page, so as I, the interior composition of the book, the layout is important to me. Like, I feel like every book is like a piece of art. The whole book is a piece of art, how it opens. I wanted to, I told the publisher, I don't want a single, there's not a list on the page, like the list of the science fathers. I want every page when you open it randomly to have at least one illustration or a side box or an icon for that, some graphic element on every single page, because I knew that, that we're in a generation that is visual and that some people will, will skip over the images because they really want the text. But a lot of young people are reading image to image. So I wanted it to be like a graphic novel in a sense where you can just kind of quickly, and it reads fast because it's, uh, you know, it's 30% images. Yeah. Know? Yeah. I, you <laughs> know, it's funny you say that because I, I actually was going to ask you, I had noticed that and I, I didn't realize it was on purpose. I just thought you had so many, you know, either illustrations. The other thing that's really, I really like about it is you have on not, not every page, but a lot of the pages you you're putting basically here's what what the opposition would say here's here's and you know um i'm just trying to look for the, the like objection why yeah, did no, I'm trying, why I'm didn't to get the first the century objections into it. Yeah. yeah no See, i agree and i think that's part of it but you know you know andrew i don't know if you, you probably feel the same way i do like we there's there's like a genre of apologetics books and and, and so many will do so many similar things i'm always afraid i just don't want to do the same thing everyone else has already done because there's better books out there yeah I don't, who wants to write something that's already a better version exists you know so so people will say oh is your book like case for christ well not really um if you look at lee lee's a, a journalist so he's always interviewing people so it's a, it's a collection of interviews where Whereas um, I will do some interviews, but for the most part, I don't trust experts. <laughs> okay. And I don't trust myself as an expert. So what I have to do basically is I want to get back to what is the thing the expert is talking about? Like, what is the base fact or evidence that, because what happens in jury trials, honestly, is that we bring up an expert to talk about this DNA. And uh, sure enough, our guy's a county employee because it costs us zero to get him because we have no budget. It's all in the county dime. We're the prosecutor. So we can't like hire the best expert. We have to basically use, and we can occasionally, but for the most part, we're trying to do it on the cheap. Yeah. Whereas the defense team, they got money. They're going to hire the same guy you have, but 15 times better. You know, he's the national expert. He's going to be able to say, yeah, I taught this other guy uh, at the county here. I taught him five <laughs> years ago. Okay. So now you're looking like an idiot, right? So, but, but in the end we tell jurors, Hey, the experts just offer inferences. Doesn't mean the inference is true. That's right. You get to go back to the evidence and use your common sense to be able to determine which of these two experts is making more sense. So what I try to do in this book is just get back to what are the facts? You know, here's the data. Here's what you find if you look at all the, uh, for example, on the, uh, we talk about the fuse that leads up to Jesus's appearance and then the fallout afterwards. And one aspect of that fallout is literature. But I wanted to know, like, how many voices exist in antiquity who have spoken something about Jesus some of those will be uh, manuscript writers, but some of those voices are just recorded on manuscripts. Like we don't know anything about Celsus except that Origen speaks a lot in, in responding to Celsus. So we hear Celsus's voice on the pages of Origen's work. 
So there's a voice, even though the, the, the author is a Christian author. Well, if you go through history like that, you're going to discover that there are way, way more non-Christian voices between the Greeks and Persians and Romans and Egyptians and Jews and all the non-canonical authors than there are Christian voices who say something about Jesus. And so you can now reconstruct a story. Let's, okay, so let's take out the church fathers. Now, what would we learn if we just had the non-Christian voices? And I have one chapter that just summarizes. And then here's the other thing, too. We knew we had about 250 pages we could work with. And so then we knew we had about 50 pages we can put in the endnotes. The problem was we had over 300 pages of endnotes. So we had to kick off the other 270 pages to a PDF file. Because I knew if I put that stuff in, like, who's going to read that? It's going to be <laughs> so boring. I mean, it has to move faster. So there's lots of footnotes. Uh, but some of these, if you wanted to know, well, who are those 400 Church, uh, science fathers that you've mentioned in the list you know well you have to go to the footnotes to get that in the pdf file because there's just no way to put that in there yeah. people have said why didn't you put that in there because it would have been about 30 continuous pages of lists who reads 30 pages of lists nobody yeah so i just wanted to get that data that, to you but i don't want to deliver it in the pages of the book that just be, means printing paying for printing of, of pages that no one's going to read because oh, it, I mean, oh, it's, yeah. it's, it's powerful to have all those names but what are people going to do they're going to do what they typically do when they come to the genealogies in the Bible, right? Just flip over that. <laughs> That's right. They're going to flip on. That's exactly what but, they're going but to this do. But yeah. it is a, a quick-moving book. It, you, the, between the illustrations you have in the side notes where you, you give the objections, and that I think as an apologetic book, it's really good. You just here's all the content, and you know each one of them, there's, here's the objective, here's a quick answer. That is really helpful just for folks who want to go, hey, I've, I've had this objection. And, and a lot of anyone who's been following your podcast or, or your blog articles, you know, they, they've, I think a lot of this has been in works much more than two years because we, I've been hearing this from you for a long time. You, yeah. And, and you, you really do present, and I think because of your background, you present this different than others do. You're, you're coming at it from an, an investigative detective type of mindset. You're bringing that in. And I think that is a different, that's why you always refer to being, you know, your original book, Cold Case. You know, right. Christianity, be cold case, you know, do being a cold case detective. You you talk about being a case maker, say, okay, let's make a case for this, right? That's what a, a detective is going to do when you go to court. Right. So I think your overall approach to the way you write, I think all of your books it is very different. It's, it's unique. And I mean, I, I agree with you. I have, I have some great books that have never been published. I have a, I have a great book on evangelism. I got a hundred and I think 92 pages written and it'll probably never be in print. Why? There's other books that that are just as good. Mm-hmm. I, I I I actually told Greg Kokel once that, that basically when between Greg Kokel's book Tactics and Jason Lyle's book The Ultimate, um, uh, trying to remember the title now. It's the Ultimate Something for Creation. Uh, I forget the, t- the title, but Jason Lyle has a book basically talking about he's talking presuppositional apologetics. Great Greg Kokel's book on on tactics really helps you to how to answer, ask good questions. And I looked at those two and said, between those two and, and anything from Ray Comfort, because basically all his books are the same. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Just read those, those books and you have, exactly. Like, I don't need to, like, I basically those sum up exactly everything that I had written in my book. So I'm like, why bother? Like, here you go. Just read these. (laughs) And and your book is different that way. I've had publishers come to me and say, Hey, would you write a book? 
where you're doing like a, like a daily devotional or something in a poll. They're out there. I mean, there are Lee Strobel did one with Mark Middleberg. It's, it's an apologetics daily devotional. I mean, I just also want my concern too, is that I, well, this is just my selfishness is that I, I want to be cre- do something creative because that's why I do any of this, right. Is that I missed the creative aspect of art and architecture. And for all, a lot of years before I was working cold cases, I was, we were not, I wasn't able to scratch that itch. Um, the way I wanted to. I mean, I started a police band, a musical <laughs> band. For years, we had that. That was hilarious. Anyway, but but the idea was we're just trying, just trying to scratch an itch that I didn't think that I was getting. You know, working patrol and, and working gangs or whatever it was. And so, I, how do you be, be creative? So, if I if someone offer, you know, pitches a, um, a project that is inf- so informative, but I don't have a creative angle, yeah. like it's, I'm not going to enjoy doing it. It's just going to feel like a homework assignment. It's not going to feel like, oh, every day I get up and I, and I can create something new. So when I'm looking at it, now the problem with, with creative ideas is that creativity requires you to take a risk of tanking it because you you could, you know, you could, you, when you see people who are like musician or uh, uh, musical artists and they have an album out, right? Well, I'll give you an example of this. Do you remember the old band Boston? <clears throat> so Boston came on the scene. They were MIT engineers. They had a song called more than a feeling. That was a huge hit, right? That first album when they had spent like eight years writing music and they pitched their first album. Well, then of course it was a huge hit. They wanted album number two. Well, album number two ends up sounding pretty much exactly like album number one. By album number three, they were done. They, they could not like turn creative corners. But look uh, at someone like David Bowie. Look at his career. You know, to compare young Americans all the way to Hunky Dory. I mean, or to um, to the first album, Ziggy Stardust. Uh, compare those albums, spread. I mean, there's like this guy was constantly pushing envelopes. Now, some of those were really not good. <laughs> some were better than others, right? So you have to be willing to take a risk if you're creative and stretch a genre. Yeah. So I knew when we did this book that I was going to, in some ways, um, try to stretch the genre. What I'm trying to do is to get the church that doesn't give a lick about whether or not this is even true. Yeah. Uh, doesn't even have any idea how to express it to others, how to defend it to others, or how to make a case for it to others. You know, if you look at, if you're running a Christian apologetics niche, um, even if you're writing a Christian evangelism niche, that's not selling to the church at all. That people don't want to read those books. Um, I mean, that it, you could say, well, yeah, that some will. We, yeah. we have a tribe of people who listen to our podcast who will, of course, buy those books. Yeah. But the church at large would rather buy Crazy Love or some other book that's really about how I can have, uh, how, do, how will it affect my life tomorrow? How can I be better at X, Y, or Z? Um, how can I experience God in some way that's more experiential? These yeah. are the kinds of books <clears throat> that sell more. Even Christian fiction sells at a much higher rate than other Christian nonfiction books. So how do we take a nonfiction category and try to be creative with it to capture what would otherwise be the fiction audience that is yeah. that needs to know that this is defendable in a way that is. So here's my concern for young people is that, that, that you have a saved Christian that lacks the confidence to be able to resist the cultural onslaught. Right. I want us to, if you know, and that's first book talks about this. If you know your best, <clears throat> we'll stop bullets. You are far more likely to stand in it calmly in a gunfight because you've already seen it stop bullets in the range. Yeah. Now you, you may be wearing the vest and never seen it, that it could stop bullets. And you may still have some blind trust in the vest because someone told you about it, but until you see it stop bullets, 
And people, by the way, who have been in shootings where they have survived it with their vest on, oh, these folks have a firsthand experience of what the vest can do. Mm-hmm. Now they are calm and others, they have more confidence. I was just talking to an officer in, in, in North Carolina because I do a lot of work with police officers. And he was telling me about how after being involved in a shooting, he got dispatched to a, a school where a kid with an AR-15 was barricaded in a bathroom. Mm. And as he's getting on the way there, he realized that the vest he was wearing would not stop that round. Mm. And he had no ballistic helmet. And he felt like I just had a certain amount of trepidation that I was under equipped. And I knew that I was probably going to be the first guy on scene. And it was probably going to be about five minutes before I got back up. But I knew that I was outgunned. And I didn't have like a ceramic plate and carrier, which would stop the AR-15 round. I didn't have a ballistic helmet. I just felt like I was under. And so he, he, he did this job. He did what he's called to do because we're all called to do it. But, but he, I thought to myself, wow, we should probably start a GoFundMe or something just to get officers this equipment. So they would, because agencies can't afford to get it to them sometimes in smaller yeah. agencies. Yeah. But again, it was that he, if he'd have had the equipment he needed, that's what we're trying to do with scripture, with the, the, the claims of Christianity for young people. Look, I, again, God's going to make the move. God is going to turn, flip the switch. But what I want you to know is I want you to have confidence that this thing can stop bullets so that when the, your friends are dogging you about, about sexuality, gender identity, sanctity of life, marriage, I mean, any number of issues now that the world has rejected the teaching of Jesus, well, you just have to know that you you got to stand tall with this. Um, this is this is true, and you have to be faithful rather than popular. Um, yep. And so that's that's the the call I think that all these books. Hopefully, if people read them, it can make a change. Yeah, and you know, with with all your books and folks, if you're listening, you're hearing you know when Jim writes, all these stories come out as well. Like the, his his background, the the his experience as a police officer, it makes it a good, quick read. It makes it interesting, which is something different. So we're talking about Person of Interest, a book written, recent book written by Jim Wallace, Jay Warner Wallace, who we're speaking with. Uh, let, let's just real quick go with a, a for our sponsor uh, who helps us with put this show on, uh, and that is My Pillow, Folks, if you want a good night's sleep, uh, you those who are regular listeners, you know that I love my my pillow. I travel with my pillow, uh, my my pillow. It's a weird name. I I grant that it's a weird name for a company. He's got my pillow. Now I've tried their my slippers, and they got my sleepwear. So it, it is kind of a crazy name, but. It's really good products made here in the United States. And if you want to get yourself a good night's sleep, they have a lot more products than just pillows. I've had, I've tried out the pillows, which I've loved for years before they were sponsored. That's why I was so glad that they were a sponsor of the show. But I've tried their mattress toppers. I have their, I the recently got their, their slippers. It's cold enough to use them. Very comfortable. I have loved all their products. If you want to check out their products, go to MyPillow.com or call the 1-800 that they've created for us, 1-800-873-0176. That's 800-873-0176. Use promo code SFE, that stands for Striving for Eternity, and that not only gets you a great discount, but it helps to support uh, Striving for Eternity and all that we do there. So we appreciate that. And so let's get to the content of sure. your your book, Jim. This, as I said in the beginning, this book is all about Christ, which, you know, when, when I first got a hold of it, I was like, I love any book that's all about Christ. But you approach it, as you've already alluded to, differently. You know, you have spent years looking at 
different ways of making arguments. And I think that's one of the things I appreciate of the ministry that God has with you is you come about things differently than most apologists do. And that's one of the reasons I think that you're someone like you, and you're not alone. There's other people that do that with their unique backgrounds. I mean, you you mentioned your friend Lee Strobel. He's a journalist. Mm -hmm. He approaches it that way. But when you have someone that is doing something that's a little different, that's helpful. That it's extremely helpful because when you're you're sitting talking with an atheist and they've already they've already heard all the arguments from you know any of the the mainstream apologists who they've been listening to they have the arguments. I mean, when I studied world religions and I wanted to make arguments against, say, for example, Jehovah Witnesses, I got a copy of their book reasoning the scriptures why that told me everything of how they're going to make an argument right so now i don't use any of those arguments that they have in that book why they're prepped for that i want them thinking so i'm going to ask them something differently and that's that's really what your books do this book especially it it, it's a different way of looking at things and different way of approaching it and that is refreshing it is it's good because it's like okay that's that's another tool to put in the toolbox where I can say, okay, if, if someone comes to me with, now I have some ways of, of looking at it. You, you provided some, some different, um, different ways the, the world looks at, at Christ. Um, so I wanted to look at some of these. You, you talk about the, I'm just going to go through the different chapters. Sure. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you have the, the, you know, Jesus in chapter two as, you know, the average ancient, you know, mm-hmm. um, let, let's the, because this one and, and the copycat were the ones I, I I just found kind of interesting because I, and I've heard you talk about these for years. So let, let's talk about that. What is the view that people have of he's, he's just average, you know, average ancient? Yeah, there's a sense in which you know that people recognize some similarities between the story of Jesus and other um, um, deities that have been worshipped by ancient people groups. So, and how many times have you heard this now in the last? Really, it's, I'd say probably the last twenty years has been the biggest rise of people who are kind of the Jesus mythers who would say. And there's an entire kind of cottage industry of authors and speakers that are out there on the on the atheist side who would say, "Yeah, Jesus has just been copied. He's not a really even a real historical person. He's just a myth." And, in the long line of dying and rising saviors that, that, that populated antiquity. He should be given no more credence or, or than Osiris or Horus or Mithras or any of these others that they would say are really, and they would make parallels. So they'll tell us, let me describe for you Osiris. Let me describe for you Mithras. And they'll make these long, elaborate descriptions of these other gods that seem like, my goodness, they're describing Jesus of Nazareth. Of course, uh, if you really do the research, you'll recognize that they're not telling you the truth mm-hmm. about their descriptions, but they do recognize something that I recognize, which is there are overarching similarities, yes. very broad similarities. So I thought, let's make a list. So let's just ignore Jesus for a second. Let's just go back to all the ancient mythologies. Let's include things like Quetzalcoatl on on, uh, on the South American continent. Let's let's get it all over the world. Let's take a look because if you examine like deities from the uh, the Americas you'll find that the similarities are there too. And these similarities are just broad, overarching. They reflect the expectations that any thoughtful person would have about God if he's thinking or she's thinking about God. Mm-hmm. Even if you just imagine, well, how do you know, because this is something we discovered in the data, and I include this in that chapter. Uh, you, you, there's been studies done now by mostly atheists at, on Ivy League and schools across the, the globe where they're looking at, you know, what is the default position of young people when it comes to theism? It turns out atheism is not an 
agnosticism is not the default position. I've done a number of studies on this now. The default position of infants and young people is they look at a, at a world that appears to be designed and they infer a designer. This is why the vast majority of people on planet Earth believe in some kind of higher power. This is true today. It was true in antiquity. So you think, oh, well, atheism is on the rise. Well, it might be, but not really. That's not yeah. when you look at the global situation. Don't get caught up in America in 2021. Look at the global situation in 2021. And if you look at that, you'll see that atheism is the very vast, a tiny percentage of overall humans on planet Earth. Well, these people like us, we expect certain expectations. You know, for example, if you think there's a God, well, you probably think that God can do supernatural things. Well, that's one of those expectations, the 15 I identified. You probably think if there's a God who's supernatural, he would come into the world in a supernatural way. Well, there's another one of those expectations. Well, these mythologies share some of these, not all. Mm -hmm. The 15 that I identified, I could have just identified 10, but I wanted, I mean, we read through the first time. And we found a handful, you know, like eight or nine. And all of us said, yeah, I'm seeing this, I'm seeing this. And then somebody would say, well, I saw three of these though. And I'm like, oh, we should go back and make sure we didn't overlook anything. Because maybe there's more. We just didn't read it deep enough. So we went back and read it a second time and then a third time. And then we ended up with 15. So those 15 are similarities between the ancients from Attis to Heracles to, you know, Osiris to Horus, whatever it is. So we compare those 15. No one's got more than about 10. And they're always a different 10. And no one's got less than about six. So that's the group we picked. Mm -hmm. Now, interestingly, Jesus shows up in history at a time when the vast majority of these mythologies are still being worshipped by some people groups somewhere on the planet. So he's in the overlap because not every one of these religions continues very long into the common era, but, but there's an overlap there where all the vast, I think all but like one or two that I could find were all being worshipped simultaneously. And in the middle of that appears Jesus of Nazareth, Possessing not six of the attributes or 10 of the attributes, but he's the only one who possesses all 15 of the attributes. Mm. That's interesting to me. In other words, it's like Paul says when he's on Mars Hill. You people are super religious and you believe in a lot of gods, but it turns out there is a God over here. I'm going to tell you about named Jesus. Um, And now what's interesting is Paul's saying what C.S. Lewis says about myth he uses lewis used the word myth to to mean simply a narrative about origins and deity and the role that god plays in our lives right not myth as like a a falsehood or a lie or or a a fictional narrative no he's using the word myth as to mean the stories about deity and what lewis said was that the ancients wrote myths about gods from the minds of their own poets whereas jesus is god's myth grounded in what we call real things. Now, what's interesting, what Paul says is he says, you all are very religious. You even have a tomb to the unknown God here. It's all and very interesting. But over here, we know that Jesus is God because we saw him rise from the grave. Yeah. And what he's basically saying is you're, by the way, if you look at the ancient mythologies of Osiris and all those, they are not written as eyewitness accounts that some early group of people actually saw this God. They're written as, as narratives, as stories, as fables. Mm-hmm. So what Paul is saying is, hey, you've got your myths written from the minds of your poets, but over here we've got a true being who we observed with our eyes. That's a very different kind of claim. 
So that's why Lewis would say that, that that's grounded in real things. Yep. These are grounded in fictional thoughts from the minds of poets. So that's the difference. And, and why would God do that? Because anytime the expected meets the expectations of the expector, you get a really good result. Yeah. This is this is why if you show up looking like a bum and when you're supposed to be a cop, and I've done that, I was working undercover. If you show up looking like I'm a police officer, can you tell me what happened? They're looking at you like, that's not my expectations of what a police officer should look like. So they're not going to give you much time. So you end up starting with your badge and your ID. Well, no, really, really, I am a police officer <laughs> because that you're not meeting their expectations. So it takes a little while to work to gain their confidence to tell you, like they're thinking, is this guy even like it's a fake ID? Like there's no way this guy's a cop. There's the problem. So Jesus ends up meeting the expectations of the expectors in a way that the story just explodes. As soon as Jesus arrives, you see that the, 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 think, of, think of the growth. With, with with Jesus, because it's the ancient nature of, say, uh, uh, Egyptian Osiris worship, let's say, you can't really track, like, I know at this point, there were zero worshipers of Osiris. And then within six weeks, there's this many. And then within six months, there's this many. Within 60 decades, or 60 years, rather, six decades, there's this many. Well, we were watching the growth of Christianity in real time in the yeah. first century, right? Like, we can, you can say that, hey, 30 AD, there's no, there's no Christianity. But by 130 AD, you have a pretty thriving community. And by 330 AD, it is the religion of the empire. Yeah. What accounts for that explosive growth? Well, a lot of it is that he comes in the fullness of time. The fuse is set in such a way that when the bomb explodes, um, it, the, the, the culture is ready for it. The spiritual seekers are ready for it. The Jewish prophecies are already predicted it. And it just takes off like a wildfire. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I remember the movie Zeitgeist, which was a movie that a lot of people, when you talk about the copycats of you know, the, all these other gods, that, look, he's no different than Mithra or any of these others. And I, I, I did an episode once on, on the Apologetics Live show um, years ago where we I evaluated the, that movie, which is based off a book. Here was the thing I found really interesting. The one thing that they had in that movie, where and so many people use this to try to say, well, Jesus is just like the ancient deities of old, all the Egyptians. The one thing I found really interesting that they all had in common, supposedly, was all of them were born on December 25th, and all of them were called the Son of God. Th- those were two elements in that movie that they had with all of them. And and I just, I always laughed at that. I remember on the street, I was in, recently in South Philly evangelizing, and someone brought me in because this guy's talking about all these Egyptian gods, and, and, he, and this guy didn't know how to make an argument against it. And so I come over, he invited me into the conversation so that I could help with answering it. And I said, well, you notice that they're all, they all have that in common. And the guy goes, yeah. I said, and do you realize that Jesus wasn't born on December 25th? And he went, what? Yeah, he's probably born in like April, you know, sometime in the spring. And did you know that son of God, S-O-N and son of God, S-U-N, only works in English, not in Egyptian. So that wouldn't work with, with Mithra. And this guy was just like mouth open, didn't know what they, because right. they, they, they hear these arguments. And it's like, well, that must be true. And it's, it, it's, it's kind of sad, but it doesn't take a lot of critical thinking to debunk some of these things. 
Yeah. And sometimes this means like, would you chase down the claim? Again, we talk about this, right? Like experts make inferences, but you don't even know uh, unless you go back to the evidence from which they're making an inference. If the inference is reasonable, look at that. When we write about, I wrote a book called God's crime scene, looking at just the evidence for God in the universe. And what am I using? I'm using the exact same evidence that the atheists use to draw a separate inference. Yeah. I think the better inference from the same exact evidence is theism, but it's not like I'm using different evidence. It's not like I've gone out. I'm going to ignore all the evidence. No, I'm using the same evidence. The problem is, is that people will lie about the evidence yeah. and you see this in jury trials all the time where you have to stop them, right? So what will happen is, you know, we have the responsibility of closing arguments and so does the defense, but we get a rebuttal that the defense doesn't get because we have the burden of having to, he's, he's innocent until proven guilty. So we have that extra burden. So what we'll do is the, the defense team will almost always um, um, throw the, 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 they'll narrate it in such a way that they've kind of changed the nature of the evidence, right? Because it works for them. And we have to kind of go back and remind them, hey, they can say it that way, but you already know what the facts are. Don't forget the argument, my argument, his argument, that's not evidence. The only thing that's evidence is the evidence. The, argue, the arguments are not evidence. That's why, for example, you don't get a, a script of what we said in closing arguments. That doesn't mm-hmm. go back with you in jury deliberations. You don't get the PowerPoint. That doesn't go back with you in jury deliberations. That's not evidence. Yeah. That's just argument. So, so in the end, I want you to return to evidence. And it turns out, if you look at the evidence for Mithras, look at the evidence for Osiris, none of these things they claim are actually true, except for the broad nature of them. Yes, they enter the world. They can defeat death. Well, why wouldn't you think that your God could, uh, duh, right? Like, if your God is God, he can probably defeat everything, right? He's all powerful. You know, he's the creator of all things. Okay, Okay, that's just what we think about when we think about God. Even higher powers today that are imagined amongst the secular or amongst people who are not secular, but maybe have some kind of broad view of God, they still embody usually those 15 attributes. You know, they're thinking about that those seem reasonable, even to folks who just believe in a higher power. So why would that surprise you? But it turns out that Jesus meets the expectations. By the way, he also meets the expectations, I showed in that same chapter, the expectations of the types that appear in the Judaic history. You know, he's very similar in type. Again, only if you look at the broad outline of Moses, the broad outline of Jonah, the broad outline of Joseph, you can draw you can you can cherry pick facts from Moses's life, from Joseph's life, from Jonah's life to make him sound just like Jesus. Yep. But that is interesting. This is why um, you know it's oftentimes Jesus will parallel himself as Jonah was in the belly of the whale. So will I be in the tomb? These kinds of things are. He's trying to leverage the fact that even the expectations of the Jews and the, the history of the Jews uh, is reflected in the person of Jesus in a way that should make him. Now, again, does this mean though? And we saw it, right? It's not like Jews suddenly said, "Oh yeah, I think these parallels convince us." No, and it's not true that every uh, pagan <laughs> decided that they would switch over to, to Christianity. There are it, God has given us more than enough evidence to demonstrate mm-hmm. that. It is true. Yet, of course, uh, more than enough reason to reject it. Why would that be the case? Because really, I think what he's looking for is a sincere response from us, right? Even though I'm a compatibilist when it comes to free agents, I'm not sure where you land on that, right? So I don't (laughs) believe you can do anything that can be done. I believe you do anything that you want to do. And where God operates is at the level of wants and desires. He changed my wants and desires. Mm -hmm. And so he may change somebody who's reading this book. So again, I I never think that as an evidentialist, even I don't think that I somehow my clever arguments are, have the power. Yeah. Um, I, I, it's just that we're going to say something. It seems to me that God could easily 
come to all of us without a single word ever having to be spoken and just ignite our faith. It could, yeah. but for some reason he, he involves those of us as evangelists to share some piece of information. The only question is like, which piece of information are you going to share? Sometimes depending on how you're talking to. Yeah. And, and it's important for, especially for my audience, most, you know, my audience would be more presuppositional and, and you and I know each other. We, we've, I know you. A little, so when people say you're, Oh, he's, you're an evidentialist. Yeah. You, you do make evidential arguments, but as we've searched at the beginning of this show, you've you made clear it's god who does the work and and oh, i think absolutely. i think a lot mm-hmm. of people make a mistake sometimes of thinking oh well because i think there may be some there are some actually not there may be there are some people who think they can convince someone into the kingdom you're not that guy right. no and no and, and i just know from my own personal experience i mean look i knew this was the route and if you'd have asked me back then when i wasn't maybe as, as thoughtful theologically about how the whole process took place uh you know i mean i, I would tell you that but what so what is it that brought me in well it was a it was a study of the evidence that god used like a presentation of the gospel because it was ultimately a presentation of the gospel in other words when i got to romans and corinthians i knew already that the bible was was reliable and then what paul said about my fallen nature and need for a savior and the fact that i've been rejecting god all this time i actually said oh that's so true yeah <laughs> and I was willing to read into those chapters because I had already done the, the work in the Gospels that now kind of opened up the script. In other words, sometimes all we're doing here is removing the barriers. That's right. So that you can hear the Gospel. Because I would never have listened to the Gospel unless you first helped me remove the barriers that I yeah. had constructed. They, they were just all my own prideful barriers. You know, this is, you know, that whole attitude that sometimes you have when you're the person who gets called to the scene every time to sort this out. Yeah. Like you're the person who's, I called you here so you would take control. Well, that ends up raising up a whole generation of folks who think they can take control of everything, including yeah. their theological <laughs> life, you know? So, so for me, I just needed to kind of knock those barriers down that I yeah. had built and this process helped me to knock them down. Then in the end, it's the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. And I hope no one reads a book about apologetics that isn't helping them to get ready to share the gospel. Well, that's what and Titus that's, says, right? That the, these are these are to shut the mouth of the ignorant, right? So that the gospel can go. And that's really the goal of, of apologetics, I believe, is just shutting the mouth of the ignorant so that the gospel can go forth. If, if you're doing that's apologetics right. and, it's, and the, the gospel's not in there, then you might as well just join the debate club. And, and I'll tell you something, I'm, I've been guilty of that. So, so, so I have been guilty. I, I, I look back and I, I think, you know, I, I guess, I, again, it's, it's my own, and I shouldn't feel this way, I guess, but I, my own um, uh, aversion. So if, as a non-believer, if you would have tried to approach me with the gospel, I would have shut you down. And so I'm always thinking about, well, how can I, I, I get you to a place where you're now ready to hear it, even if it's not from me? But I realized, looking back at that, that I, what am I doing here? In the end, I, like I don't want people. I want people to think that I'm, I'm reasonable enough to just make the case and not think like the whole thing is goal oriented. Like I yeah. just did all of this so I could preach the gospel to you. Well, yeah. that's why we're doing all of this. But like, for example, have you ever seen like Christian movies? It feels like every time you watch a Christian movie, the whole thing, whatever it does, is just going to end up. Everything's going to turn out great at yeah. the end. Everyone's going to be resolved. All the someone's going to pray. Someone's going to receive Christ in the movie. I mean, th- this is like it's like every movie, right? Yeah. And we kind of look at that and think, well, that's not the way life is. Life is more more complicated than that. So it yeah. takes more steps for a lot of people. Like, why can't we just have a, a little tension retained in the end of this, right? Because yeah. that's how life is. 
like not everything has that rainbow at the end, you know, where we're all celebrating and dancing in a circle. Um, and I, so I always wrote books that I thought were like, you know, I want to get you to that point where you're right before the circle and the rainbow, but, but I, I wanted to just kind of pave the way. But now that I'm older, especially at 60 now, I'm looking back at that and thinking, man, I should have been more clear in every yeah. one of these. Uh, it should have, should have been more clear. So, so a lot, so again, it's like, I look at Lewis's work and I'm thinking, you know, was he always, he always explained the gospel. Um, even though, and so I'm, I'm just looking back and thinking I could have probably done that better. Well, we all, I mean, because God keeps sanctifying us, right? I mean, that's, yeah. you know, that's the thing. We keep, <laughs> we keep, we keep getting more and more like Christ. So yeah, anything yeah. we've done in the past is like, oh, I, I, I mean, I've I've wanted to re-preach sermons <laughs> I did yeah. years ago because no, like oh I could have done that so much way. better. Yeah, <laughs> actually no, I, I think I, I think I get done right with a sermon that. on Sunday. I think I could like as soon as I get done, I'm like oh, I could have done that better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And when we first we were writing articles, and like, like when I want to allow like my son Jimmy, and that was probably does about sixty percent of our content. And I know he's like me. He will look back at these things. He's I'm just posting them. You know, like I'm, but he's going to look back at these things two years from now and go, I want to rewrite that. Yep. Yep. That's just the nature of, of our progress as thinkers, as Christians, as Christ followers. The, so, the, the advantage yeah, I want with, to allow us, us the opportunity to, to sound stupid. The, the advantage with the out. internet though, is that we can actually go and update that. <laughs> you know? Yes. You know, believe me, I've done that a number of times and I still feel like I need to go back and rewrite half the stuff online, but you know, yeah. Yeah, so, and, yeah hope, hopefully we have grace. I and mean, I think we do have grace as a community, but the, yeah. the non-believing community probably doesn't have that kind of grace. Yeah, and and I think that's the thing that you're you're really doing. And this book, I think, is with all your books actually are, are very encouraging to the believers, right? And the goal of it, I think, for the unbelievers is, as you said, just remove some of those barriers. Okay, here you make these arguments. But there's there's other ways of viewing that. You know, when you I don't know if you ever went to the Creation Museum, they used to have when you first went in the Creation Museum, they would have a, a basically a, a room you walk in and there's like a fossil there and there's two people looking at the fossil and they they have them talking. One's a, a, a Christian, one's an atheist. They're looking at the same evidence, but they're both interpreting it very differently. One's looking at the evidence and saying this is evidence, you know. Of, the, of a young earth. The other one's looking at it and saying, this is evidence of an old earth. They're looking at the same exact fossil, right? And, and the whole point of it is to say, the evidence doesn't change. That's right. It's, it's the interpretation that changes. That's right. And yeah, that's a brilliant, that's a brilliant, uh, actually a brilliant display. And I thought the same thing because we, this is what Bart Ehrman separates Bart Ehrman from Bruce Metzger. Yeah. You know, two people who work together and roll one book together and one is out and one is in, they're looking at the exact same biblical evidence. You know, it's not yeah. like this the manuscript evidence changed for Bart. Bruce <laughs> was aware of all that evidence too. He just interprets it differently. That's right. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and that, that's the whole thing is that I think when we're in a, a culture and we're more and more in this culture that you have people that they're hearing the same false narratives over and over about Christianity. They don't hear what Christianity actually believes. I know this because I talk to them on the streets when I go out and evangelize, and they they really believe the false narrative. And when you start giving them the truth, there's a point where they deny what the Bible actually says, even if they read it. Because they have their their false narrative. I, I remember uh, you know, opening the scriptures, and and I had as someone I was talking about prophecies, and I opened Isaiah fifty three without mentioning where it was, when it was. I just read it, and I said, "Who's this speaking of?" He goes, "Jesus Christ." I said, "Are you sure?" 
Absolutely. I said, how can you be so sure? And he's making an argument for it. And I'm like, but that's 750 years before Jesus. That's Isaiah. Now, here's the thing. This is someone who is Jewish. Now, he was more of a liberal Jew, but he's Jewish. And he never knew, like, he never heard that. And so the whole time it's like, no, that's not true. That's, that, that doesn't happen. And yet it's like, well, here, you just proved that, you know, absolutely, this is Jesus. How do you know yeah. that? <laughs> yeah, that's, I think that's a really smart way to to do it, right? Because what you're trying to do is, and I think you're absolutely right. I've worked with, with attorneys in the DA's office, many of whom would say they're Jewish and even would celebrate it to some extent, the Holy Days, but, but they don't um, really ever read the Old Testament. They are not really religious Jews. They're more cultural. Um, and so I think this is probably true for a lot of, sadly, for a lot of believers in every single category. This is true, we know, for a lot of Christians. And sometimes we're writing books like this just for cultural Christians to kind of wake up and realize what is in your own scripture. Yeah. <laughs> like, would you be excited about reading your own scripture, right? Because and especially in the South, uh, and I'm from Los Angeles, so here uh, it's not a, a dominant worldview. So those who hold it probably have thought about it because they're in a world that's kind of denying it and putting pressure on them. So we probably have thought about like, why would we be in this small subset of our County? Yeah. I mean, why would we be that? Now, if you're in the South, this is like something everyone, I noticed, for example, when you're working with Mormons in Salt Lake City, that, um, that there's a culture, a business culture, a familial culture, just a culture mm-hmm. in general that embraces a belief in Mormonism. And even if you're a guy who really doesn't even convince that it's true, but it would behoove you to go through the steps because it'll benefit you in your marriage, it'll benefit you socially, it'll benefit you even professionally if you are part of that culture. Well, the same has been true in the South, for a largely dominantly Christian culture. Mm-hmm. But like, if you asked these folks, so, so for example, whenever you role play as an atheist, which was Sean McDowell and Brett Conklin, I do occasionally to kind of help them see what they don't know. You will find that they are really unprepared to defend anything mm-hmm. and they get angry oh, yeah. while you're And they know that you are like, I've seen Sean do this a couple of times where you have to stop. You'll put, you'll, you'll, you'll want to do something to make sure, okay, when I have the jacket on, I'm an atheist. When I take the jacket off, I'm me. So you'll put the jacket on. And within about 15 minutes, they're like mad at you. Like, okay, I'm st- take the jacket off. I'm still me, guys. Don't relax, okay? Put the jacket back on. And so you keep going. And it's because they just really have never thought seriously. And by the way, if you're in Dallas, you can probably defend why you think Dak Prescott should play this week, even though he's got a calf strain. Okay? You, in other words, there's stuff that you're prepared to defend. Yeah. It's just not Christianity, the thing that ought to matter the most. Mm-hmm. I mean, who, a lot of these folks, if you're a believer and you were raised that way in the South, would you identify yourself as a cowboy fan first or as a Christian first? Well, it turns out you're better able to describe the offensive line on the Cowboys than you are the 12 apostles. Well, okay, that, there's a problem there, right? And we all are, I'm just as guilty of this as anyone <laughs> else. Trust me, I'm distracted. And I know I'm distracted. Well, well maybe not for to... not for me for the Dallas Cowboys because fo- folks at my show know I, I actually. So this, this is a true true story. Uh, I I was witnessing on a plane out to Dallas the whole time talking to this guy. You know, just having you know no big deal, right? Get off the plane, you know, where they had limo drivers hold up the signs for people's names. So he walks over to a limo driver, and immediately people are asking to take his picture. I'm like, oh, okay, he must be someone. So I go over, you know, I go to the baggage claim. I'm sitting there, baggage claim. I see he's coming by. A couple more people want to get his picture. So he walks over to me to get his bags. I'm like, I go, so Tony, I got to ask, so so who are you? And and like, obviously you're somebody that everyone should know. And I clearly have no clue. And the limo driver goes, you don't know who this is? I'm like, Tony? 
And he's like, he's the he's the quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. And I'm like, okay, you know, that's and, so funny. You know, I had so no funny. idea who he was. And now he, you got me curious. How did he respond to you when you were witnessing? Well, him? he was he receptive. He, or he was, yeah, it was a good conversation. He just he was listening. And I, I, you know, I'm thinking like he's receptive and he was like, he actually walked away and I gave him, I had a, a CD with a gospel presentation on it that, you know, I give to people and I gave it to him and I actually gave one to a limo driver. And I'm like, I just said, you know, you know, give a listen to that. And he, he actually thanked me. He, he was like, he was like, that was one of the best conversations I've had in a long time. And I, I, at first I was like, oh, cause it was mm. about Christ until afterwards when I told some friends about it and I realized like he was some big deal that yeah. I realized he probably was just glad that someone didn't have any idea who he was and just yeah, talking no, with him. Let me tell you, I think the same thing. I mean, I started talking a lot about celebrity after Robbie Zacharias thing broke. And, and I, I just, I'm so averse right now to that aspect of what we have to do. Yeah. But look, you know, this is true, right? We do podcasts. We do all these things. We're, we're on all these different platforms. Some, many of them are visual. It's, it's you, they're going to see what you look like. And so there's a level of celebrity, even amongst small niche uh, communities like yeah. apologetics. Oh yeah. And, and we have to really, I'm at the point right now where I'm, I'm ready to write another book and then step away altogether because I feel like that's the ugliest side of what we have to do in a, a social media, yeah. which I call social marketing. I mean, we're all marketing. That's all we're doing on social media and yeah. we're marketing something, even if you're just marketing you and your life and your family and your girlfriend or whatever it is you're marketing. Trust me, we're, we're pretending to be something we aren't for the purpose of gaining attention for some reason. <laughs> and nobody writes a book. They want no one to read. Nobody writes a, there's a podcast, records a podcast. They hope nobody will listen to. Yeah. I mean, we, and the, the, the way we get it listened to is that we work on social media to make it known that we're out here, right? We yeah. advertise, we, we even have advertisers, right? We, we do these things because we know, and, and we have usually good intentions when we start, we'll say, yeah, I'm, I'm building this audience so I can preach the gospel. At yep. some point though, everyone I'm watching, I'm like, really? Yeah. It seems like now you're preaching the gospel to build an audience. And yeah. so we have to be careful. I don't, and I, I see the same temptations, Yep. right? I mean, I got a chance to be on a movie after that movie was over. I thought, okay, so where's this headed next? Yeah. Well, thank God it never headed anywhere next. Uh, it, it, it stopped right there. And, and that was probably a good thing, right? Because it doesn't need, uh, first of all, I don't want to be all over the country and away from my family, away from my wife. Um, so I love the fact that we're able to do this from our office. Yeah. I love that. Oh my goodness. If I could not travel at all, I would not travel at all. This may sound really bad, but I actually was kind of glad with COVID because all my speaking events, all my travel ended. Right. Oh, and and oh, I just, absolutely. I got to be home with my wife. It was like, wow. I, I know, just really I know. It sounds that. terrible to say that, <laughs> but you know, I listened, I remember one time I was listening to, I was in Charlotte at the Billy Graham uh, museum there, the library. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, uh, and if you walk through, there's like a little kind of display museum. It's relatively small, but it's neat. And in there, there was an interview. I think it was Greta Van Sesteren, who's always been a good friend of that family. And she was, inter- I think it was her interviewing Billy Graham. He's probably in his seventies. Um, and she said, would you do anything different? And he said, you know, I would pray more. I would travel less. I would have done less events. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, so wow. every time Billy Graham does an event, it's a harvest. Yeah. It's a crusade. Yeah. So every time you do an event, you are actually bringing people into the kingdom or you're preaching the gospel, at least to people, right? Yeah. So you're saying you would rather preach the gospel less and pray more, stay home more. Yeah. And I thought, oh, okay, so thank you, Billy, for saying that, because if Billy Graham can say that after years of doing it, uh, that's the wise counsel for the rest of us 
who in the end uh, may have ignored or neglected something really important yep. to do what we thought God had called us. You know, most missionaries historically, as you study their family life, it's a train wreck. And, and I don't want to be that. I don't yep. want to neglect, you know, I'm not called to love my books and my ministry and my podcast and all this nonsense, the way that Christ loves the church. Yeah. I'm called to love Susie that way. That's right. So I have to prioritize. And, and so, um, that should rein in the celebrity nonsense, but sometimes it doesn't because like I'm on a book promotion right now, right? Well, the key thing there is the word promotion. Yeah. That's where the danger is. There's no danger in the book. The danger is in the promotion. And so I have to kind of remember that as I move forward. You know, that, and that's, I mean, this isn't really related to the book that we're talking about, but this is a very important thing because we do get that. I mean, I, I, I was on a cruise. I mean, how many, how many people are on the cruise ship? And I just, I, walked in to go get someone a drink, you know, to go get a Coke, and someone recognized me from my book. They, they had read my book. They had knew, knew who I was as soon as I walked in. And I just, I told my wife, I'm just going to go get a Coke, and I'll, I'll come right back. And I'm there talking for 45 minutes because they're asking me questions about the book. And, but I had, I had really, I, I, I actually try to stay away from some of that at times. Like there was, um, they were filming for a movie, American Gospel. And one of the guys yeah. I, I speak with, you'll see him. In, you know, Anthony Silvestro, he's in the, in the film. They were filming when we were doing some open air and you see him there. I did, because of what you're talking about, I actually waited until the film crew was gone before I started open airing. They, they wanted me to get up and I'm like, I, I don't want to preach the gospel. If the, if the, if they're filming for a movie like that, I just know my own nature. I would be like, I would be, the performance exactly i would not be preaching yeah. the gospel for the gospel it's like when i go out to shepherd's conference every year you know we usually go anthony and i go a week early or a couple days early we go the saturday before shepherd's conference because we like to go and do evangelism with ray comfort well we do that beforehand and there's a reason i do it beforehand and not after because i i know that afterwards and i had this happen where you know ray's there and all the all these guys from shepherd's conference stay on that saturday and they come to watch ray and then ray one time was like hey andrew can you can you get up so he he brings me up after well then all these people wanted to talk to me not because of me <laughs> right because ray knows who i am or i know who ray like and i and i realized how seductive pride is and so i've i've tried yeah. and and i i can't say i'm perfect at it because there's times where brain pride is gonna we all have issues of pride and there's gonna be issues where that pops up but i try to like avoid the situations as best i can because i know my i know my personality i know how i am and i don't want to give into that and and it, well, it is a difficult thing it is sometimes your pride though can help you fight the pride here's what i mean um so as i got older and older and older and older. Um, I don't like aging. My, I'm arrogant enough to not like the fact that I'm old. And so I look at my son, who's like the younger version of me, and I'm like, yeah, I'm ready to get out of this altogether and just let him take it because he looks better than me. I mean, he's, he can reach a number. And that's just pride and arrogance also of a different form. But yeah. I think it's been helpful for me because now I look at, you know, videos. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. I, I still feel like I'm 40, but I don't look <laughs> like I'm 40 anymore. And I don't like that. Right. So 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 it, again, it's just but I'm trying to allow that also. There's a time after which you think you're something. Really? Do you still think you're something? I mean, at some point, is it time not to? You know, I'm watching a special last night. There's a, uh, a, it was a Steve Martin and Martin Short comedy from 2018. It's a stand-up thing. And uh, I think it's called A Night You Will Forget, right? <laughs> something like this, right? And I'm watching the two of them now, and they're older. 
And, um, and Steve Martin still is pretty, seems pretty vital in his seventies, but I'm thinking, wow, is there a point at which you no longer, I, I, I mean, I, if I'm 20 years out of the job and, and my son does the job very differently, he's writing warrants for different kinds of things. There's a digital age we're in. He's running warrants for social media platforms and, and you can learn so much more about people's movement and their interests from social media. I mean, there's a whole nother way of investigating people mm-hmm. that, that he's more familiar with than me. You know, when I started, we didn't even have cell phones. We had pagers <laughs> and a bag of quarters. Okay, we had to find a payphone to call you back. And so this is this has changed. Um, you know, my dad when he got a call, it would be on top of a pole. There would be a light downtown. The light would go on. You'd run back to the pole, get the phone, and go, "What's the call?" And then go do the call on foot. Okay, seriously, <laughs> this is 1961. So I mean, things change. And at some point, I'm ready to allow uh, the next generation to take on the banner and do it. I don't, don't need to be on the stage at 80 yeah. pretending I'm still something. Um, at, at some point you, you need to hand over the reins to somebody who's younger. Yep. Um, and I think about all that stuff all the time. Uh, and I talk about it even publicly as much as I can, because I think that every one of us who's listening to this podcast has the opportunity to do something to stop being a content consumer and start being a content creator Correct. at every age. But at some point it doesn't have to be another million dollar apologist, right? We always, I always say it's, a million one dollar apologists and i've never seen myself as anything other than another one dollar apologist that's right that's the idea we each come in with some weird experience that god has given us and we speak through that lens you're a software engineer you know there's people i know who for example are architects and engineers they run ministries that have the word architect or engineer in their ministry because that's how they're going to look at things how do you build systems how does the building of a system tell you how we build this worldview is dependent on prior uh, constructions right prior assemblies that get you to this place this is the outcome if you start with that beginning well this is the kind of stuff they talk about all the time with that good for them they are talking and throwing content through their worldview yep. and that's what we're trying to do even like a book like person of interest really it just kind of takes that's why i take an investigative approach because that's just those stuff that i was doing as, as a cop so yeah and and you know i know we don't have uh i, I mean there a lot more i want to talk about with this but i wanted i wanted no to, to go through just for folks to to see what's in this book, I want to go through some of the objections we, just to read them so people see some of the things that you are going to answer in here, and and this was a, just gives you an eye uh, for those listening. Maybe this is an objection you've heard and you didn't hear a good answer. Then get, pick up the book "Person of Interest" by Jim J. Warren Wallace. But you know, I'm going to just flip through. So, objection: There's no real, and I like real is in quotes. There's no real evidence for God or Jesus. I've heard that objection plenty of times. Um, objection, why didn't Jesus come later in history? Um, I'm just flipping through because you don't have the objections on every page. Um, I should have just written them all down. But objection, Christians were never really persecuted. I've heard that argument before. Jesus is a copycat savior. We we talked about that one earlier, and that's a, a big one. Uh, objection: If God is all powerful, why does why doesn't He stop evil? That's a big one. Objection: Wasn't the virgin conception of Jesus copied by pagan myth? You know. Objection: Why would God require a sacrifice? These these are just a foretaste of what you're going to get in the book Person of Interest. It, it, it's a book that I think. You know, you say in, as a subtitle, why Jesus still matters in the world that rejects the Bible. Uh, I, you know, but the reality is Jesus changed time, right? I mean, we, 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 I mean, right. we, we, we actually, you know, I, I was supposed to do a debate 
with uh, a rabbi, uh, Tovia Singer. He actually said he, he when he found out I was willing to debate him. He like he heard that somehow and was he actually created a banner and posted it with my picture and his picture wow. when I agreed to debate him. And he he said you know people were waiting for the debate. I think that I had a guy call me that was a follower of his, but he said he was a, a pastor. He used to be a pastor. And I found out later he became Jewish and follows Tovia. So I think that he was like, I, I almost think that this guy was, he called saying, hey, I want to help you with your arguments. Yeah. Right. But I think what not, it was, yeah. was, he was really a plan to find out what my arguments are going to be. And, and that's why this debate's probably never happened. But you, one of the things I was going to make the point of is, you know, you, you say that Jesus doesn't have much of an effect. The whole world has been changed by him. <laughs> right. even even our time <laughs> yeah and that's why we wanted to do a book like this right because yeah this is called the first century when it's not the first century it's not the first century humans lived in it's not the first century humans wrote about but it does we call it the first century because something remarkable happened yep. that is exactly what you'd expect if jesus is who he said he was and so that that's really is the goal here it's not that all of these things like literature art and music and education and science and even other world religions that mention jesus that had tip him and he can actually reconstruct the story of jesus from all of those areas areas of culture but it's not that those uh you know uh that jesus matters because he's had an influence mm-hmm. it's that that he had an influence because he matters that's it's right. just the opposite so that's what we're trying to do here and again it's not like this is a book that it's just this is a piece of a larger cumulative case right this is a piece of a lot in other words if it, jesus is who he said he was you would expect some huge outcome yep. yeah you'd expect that more universities would be founded by christ followers than all the other groups combined well that's true you would expect that more scientists would win awards and make more discoveries and found more disciplines than all the other groups combined. And that's true. You'd expect that more literature be written about Jesus than any other historical character in the history of historical figures. And that's true. You'd expect that he'd inspire more art, more music, have more impact on the progress of art, even the different genres of art, that he'd appear in every genre of art in every country in the world. And that's true. You'd expect all the stuff that we see. And from that, the fingerprints of Jesus are so robust that you can reconstruct the story of Jesus from art, from literature, mm-hmm. from music, from education, from science, and even from the world, world religions that are non-Christian. Everyone hat tips Jesus. He's in Buddhism. Yep. Yeah, the leaders of Buddhism will recognize Jesus as somebody who probably is on his way to Buddhahood, right? He's an enlightened teacher. Hindus recognize him. He's in the scriptures of the of the, uh, of the uh, Mahdi Muslims, of the Muslims, of the Baha'is. He's he, and by the way, all along Jesus never includes anyone else will come out of the mouth of Jesus. He's the only way. He's the truth, the light, the only way to the Father, mm-hmm. according to Jesus. Yet everybody else says, "Oh yeah, there's room for Jesus over here too." <laughs> well, there's no room for Buddha over here. There's no room for Baha'u'llah over here. There's no room for uh, for Muhammad over here. I'm the only way. That difference makes him a unique suspect in the catalog of religious suspects. And that's what typically happens. We get to a unique suspect in a, in a body of, if you're looking at eight suspects and one stands out uniquely, he's probably your guy. Yeah. And that's what we're doing here too. So, and, and so folks, I encourage you, this is uh, a good book to be get hold of person of interest, Jay Warner Wallace, uh, go get a copy of it. Um, Jim, it, you know, you and I actually did work on a book together. And uh, folks may not know that, but you, you and I were both, well, I was approached by someone you know, uh, Eric Johnson from Mormon Research yeah. Ministry, and right. he had an idea of a book of, he knows that I do a lot of evangelism. He said, I want to write a book of the different way that different people evangelize to Mormons. And, and I knew your background. I said, you really need to get 
Jim Wallace in on it. He's like, oh, I know Jim. So Jim Jim got in yeah, it. And it's, it's a smart approach. It, yeah. It's a great book. And people should get it if they're working with Mormons for sure. Yeah. Oh, it's, 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 there's, so there's, I think like 24 of us that were authors on it. And you and I were the two, he was going to do this as a self-published thing. And, and you and I were the ones that were like, cause he says, he's, I said this. And then he said, when he talked to you, you said the same thing. Like, no, you got to do this bigger. And we added more authors, 24 different authors, all taking a different approach of how to evangelize Mormons specifically, but the you know, neat thing is, most of our approaches—your approach, my approach—you know, you're you're making a case. I'm I'm taking the the open air. They, they, I wanted to do biblical reliability. They gave that to Matt Slick because we can only get one chapter, and they gave me open air evangelism. Right, right, like, right. Uh, like that's the, so important, though. That's what I love about the book. The book—you'll find something in that book if you're working with Mormons that you can say, "Yeah, you know, I can do that. I, maybe I can don't. I don't I, maybe I can't do this, but I can do that." And that's what's so great about the book is it comes out from so many different, it's not yep. just about like a theological underpinnings. A lot of it's very practical, like your chapter. Yep. It's a very practical book. That's a book that I think everyone should get if they, if they got Mormons in their family. Well, even, sure. even more than more, I say, you know, I know people that have picked up ideas just on witnessing to other groups. Yeah, the, 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 There was, I forget who wrote the book that, or, or the, the chapter where they go to temples and they hand out newspapers that are about temple openings. And and I had someone that said, you know, they grabbed that from there, and they're, they're not going to Mormon temples. What they did was they they went to sporting events and created a newspaper for the sports team, giving some of the history and all that, and then giving the gospel in there. And and people are always taking it. They, yeah. They're like, oh, people take this far more than a gospel track, and yet it is a gospel track. That's right. It costs more to print, but it's getting into more hands. That's and they right. got that idea from a book witnessing to Mormons. Isn't that crazy? It's like, yeah, because it's all, all that stuff in there is all transferable to any group you're trying to reach. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So the book, that book is, is sharing the good news with Mormons. It's available at strivingforeternity.org in our store. You can get get that there. It's It's good. It really, it's a, it's, it's a thing where every chapter, I mean, I didn't get to read your chapter until the book was done. None of us really read. So it's, it's, you can read each chapter is about six pages. You can read any of them in any order because they're all separate in that way. And it, it really is a, a fun book. Uh, it teaches you about Mormonism too, but really a lot of ideas in, in evangelism. So Jim, if, if folks want to get more information, they want to listen to your podcast, they want to read your blogs, they want to find out more about your books, where can we send people to? Well, I, our, our ministry website is coldcasechristianity.com. But for this book, we've got personofinterestbook.com. And here's why I mentioned that, because what we're doing, anyone who buys the book, I want to get the materials in your hands that you can then use to, to teach the material to others. So I've got a 525-slide uh, PowerPoint presentation, which is all from the illustrations in the book. It's all animated. It's ready to go. You can click right through it. It parallels the book. Uh, that We're giving that away. We just want you to buy the book, and we'll give you the PowerPoint point we have got 90 bible inserts that summarize the facts in the book that you can stick in your bible so you can have them when you're talking to people a bunch of videos that show how we've been teaching it to others so that you can you know teach it to others and and our hope is that that you'll be able to use this to knock down some barriers that people have uh, with others so that's at personofinterestbook.com now all that extra material costs extra right yeah, it's like zero. <laughs> but it, Wait, what? So I, it's, it's just, the idea here is how do you deliver it? So I had to deliver it on uh, something called Files Anywhere. So yeah, it'll take you a couple of hours to download it, but it's hopefully worth getting. <laughs> and and so and that's folks just hear the the heart of of Jim. I mean, I I know this from you. You you don't do this for the money. Uh, that's why you, you know you the book. Yeah, the book gets out there and and helps people to read it. But the materials you have there is to help people take this and now teach it to yeah. others is important. 
Yeah. So I have a pension and I, you're right about that. And so for me, I always think that I'm a compatibilist when it comes to financial freedom too. So in other <laughs> words, my financial freedom is not the ability to buy anything. It's the ability to buy anything you want. And I don't, and I don't really want anything. So I have financial freedom right now. <laughs> right. So as long as you don't want anything, everything's good. Like, what am I going to do different? I, I really want another opportunity to be creative because uh, stuff never really did it for me. What, what does it for me is the idea that I could do something creative. So I hope this book is creative and people will enjoy it that way. So folks, go out, get Person of Interest by J. Warner Wallace at personofinterestbook.com. Get a copy today. Folks, we have we have a couple copies we're going to be giving away. Uh, your, the publisher sent us some, some copies to give away. And so here's how you can get those. Uh, we're going to say that anyone who writes a review, we're interested in getting some reviews. And if you write a review, uh, we will pick one on the uh, but at the time we record this, we're going to have a couple other episodes recorded. So it'll be a couple episodes before we announce. But if you want to write a review, the way to do that is go to lovethepodcast.com slash rap report. That's rap with two P's. Mm. So lovethepodcast.com slash rap report. You can leave a review there. That way, whatever podcast show, you know, whatever app you're using, well, this is the one place you can go to write a review. Uh, it, reviews help us not to get more downloads. It doesn't help us get more listens. It helps us because, well, we sit behind a camera. Uh, right now, Jim and I are seeing each other, and that's about it. We don't hear from you guys. So it's really helpful for us as people that are creating the, the content here to know what you think. Do you like it? Do you not like it? Did you learn something? Those things are really helpful for us. It does absolutely nothing for ratings. Uh, it does nothing for rankings. I know all these podcasters are like, oh, write a review. It helps us in ranking. No, it doesn't. Um, you know, I know the rap report, at least in the United States, in the religion category, we are in the top 100 podcast. You writing a review will do absolutely nothing for that. <laughs> but you know what it'll do? It will encourage my heart <laughs> to know what you think. So p- lovethepodcast.com slash rap report. Write us a review there. Let us know what you think of this episode. Mention the episode. That will get you entered into uh, the different the different copies we have to give away. We'll announce who that is, and then we'll, we'll do that on a podcast later show. So that kind of forces you to keep listening. But if you found this to be helpful, if you found this to be something that encouraged you, would you kindly share it with someone else? Because there might be someone else that needs the same encouragement. That just might be something, a way that you can help someone else without even really recognizing it. So Jim, thanks for coming on. Uh, I, I look forward to your next book and I'm, I, I would like to say that please don't make that your last you know, you, you said you might. Oh, I appreciate you saying that, brother. <laughs> Thanks so much. I'm so glad we, were, we got a chance to do this because I haven't seen you in a while. I'm glad to see you. Yeah, well, you, you seeing me may not be a good thing, though. <laughs> oh, no, I, listen, I already talked about that. So, you know, you're getting the better, uh, I'm getting the better well, end of the deal okay. than you. No, okay, no, no, so. no. See, but the thing is that you, you've gotten, your hair's gone all white. I just have the white streak down the middle making me look like a skunk. And so, like, I'm waiting for all white at this point because the, the skunk look just doesn't help. <laughs> I, I understand. Okay, I get it. I get it. All right, man. Thanks. I appreciate all it. All right, folks. Thanks for listening. Hope you guys enjoyed this. And remember to strive to make today an eternal day. For the glory of God. See you next week. This podcast is part of the Striving for Eternity ministry. For more content or to request a speaker or seminar to your church, go to strivingforeternity.org. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. 
Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.